Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to be with you this morning, whether this is your first morning with us here as a church community or your first morning at a church gathering at all. It's so good to have you with us. And just thanks again to Rob and Danielle for sharing where you guys are up to and what a powerful illustration of the gospel of adoption. And we'll be praying for you as your church family over this next stage of the journey and um, be sharing with you in the, in the joys and challenges of that, hopefully in the, in the months and years to come. But um, we, are, we are heading through our series called Next, um, as Jacob mentioned before. And part of the reason for that is we're not very fancy at City Light, so our series titles are not very fancy. We're, after this, we're in the book of Acts. And so we're calling that series Acts. And because we're looking at what's coming up next for us as a church, it's called Next. So that's all. So easy to understand and reasonably intuitive to grasp. But the reason that we do this each year, as I mentioned last week, it's kind of like a a compass reset as we look at where it is that we're heading over the next few years and where we're up to. We kind of just check as to what it is that God is calling us to step into next. And as I mentioned last week, we don't set the mission for the church. It's Jesus' church. He's the head of the church. He has called us with all authority to go and make more and stronger disciples. And so as a church, we thought, look, if we were faithful to that, God willing, and by the power of His Spirit, over the next few years, what would we look like as a church community? And we think we'd be a growing, healthy, multi-generational community having a Sydney-wide impact. And over the last couple of weeks, we looked at one growth area, And that is that we're to grow in being disciple-making disciples. The first two weeks, we're really on seeing that we are called as missionaries to be missionaries to the city, to make disciples. And the next two weeks, we're focusing on one area of discipleship that Jesus speaks about almost more than any other. Because he says in his Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he also says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And one area that comes up almost more than any other is on this area of money and possessions and finances. And so it flows that that's something that we should speak on and focus on. And so the the shape of the series is this. The first week is you are a missionary. The second week is live like a missionary. And these next two weeks are give like a missionary. That if we are followers of Christ called to make disciples, then the way we think about all of life is being as sent missionaries. And I started last week with an illustration that I'm going to revisit now. An illustration of a missionary who was sent to another context, who had set aside everything, laid aside their comfortable life in a wealthy western city, and moved to reach a group of people who had never heard the name of Jesus. To go to a foreign context, and not only that, but to have to start a business in a foreign context in order to have some kind of a wage so that he could live in a foreign context and share the message of Jesus. And as he started a small business, it became more than a small business, and then it became reasonably successful. And he was thinking over time, look, 
once they get on my feet, then I'll have time to go about the mission. But as time went on, the business got better and better. And eventually, the mission was forgotten and the business became incredibly successful. And he continued living on there. And it was the business that ended up becoming the mission. But the, the second part of that story is that a mission organization that I know of took that as kind of a cautionary tale. And so they said to their missionaries, right, when you go to a foreign context, you're to, take, you're to set up a business so that you can work there and have a working visa, and you're to reach the people, but you're to take no money from the business. And you're only allowed to work on it a set number of days so that the business doesn't become the mission, but the mission stays the focus. And so what they were to do was to have a capped income and a set salary that was fair so that they wouldn't be, I guess, facing undue hardship, that that wouldn't be a distraction. But there were to be very clear and set parameters around what kind of money they were to make in this context so that it was clear that mission and the people that they were called to serve and love came first rather than money. And there's deep wisdom in that, isn't there? See, if we are called as missionaries to this city... And if you are a follower of Jesus and you believe the gospel of Jesus, you are sent by Jesus to make disciples. And if that's the case, then you are called to see your finances in the same way that a missionary does. See, how does a missionary see money? A missionary sees money for its potential. That is, its potential to advance the kingdom and the purposes of God, to alleviate poverty and injustice, to spread the gospel. But also, a missionary sees money for its potential danger for the danger and the devastating spiritual effect that it can have. Because money, according to Jesus, is the most spiritually dangerous thing on the planet. That there is nothing, there is nothing that has the ability to take a church or an individual off mission like money. It is like weapons-grade plutonium. It's to be handled with the utmost care and consideration. Because nothing will kill the mission faster and deaden the spiritual climate of God's people than mishandling money. And so we are called to heed Jesus' cautions about money. And to do that, we're going to stay within the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to dip back to a famous part of this Gospel called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus addresses his disciples and how it is that the Gospel is going to transform the way they relate to money as opposed to the culture around them. Come with me to Matthew 6. 19 to 21, where Jesus starts in this way. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus starts by, uh, by laying out what he is on about. He says, I'm going to talk to you about money, about treasures, about things that you have. And he says, starts with the warning, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now looking at the context, Jesus is in an extended sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about all these different areas of discipleship, just one after the other after the other. And the point in the, in the text just preceding this one has been the same. He says, when it comes to things like giving to the poor, or fasting, or doing good, he says... Again, the same message each time. Don't do it to impress people around you or for their approval. Do it because of the relationship you have with your heavenly Father. And so staying on this track, he says, when it comes to money and dealing with treasure here on earth, he says your focus is not to be gathering up stuff now, 
but to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And then he says something really weird. Did you pick up on it when Jacob was reading this out before? He says this stuff about treasure in heaven. You're like, that's pretty easy to understand. But then he says this. In Matt 6, 22 and 23, he says, The eye is the lamp of your body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now Jesus often said kind of mildly or significantly cryptic things. And because he was so wise and because he was God in human flesh, a lot of the times his disciples would be like, that is so deep, Jesus. Wow, spot on. And then quietly they'd go away and either take him aside or each other aside and be like, did any of you get what he was talking about there? And here is probably one of those expressions where like they're listening to it, but it takes a while to sink in. What's Jesus saying here? The idea of this, there's a lamp, there's an eye, there's a body, there's darkness, there's light. What's he actually going on about? Well, if you notice here, this little statement about the eye and the body comes in between two cautions about loving money, and particularly loving money more than God. And the comment that he's making here is reasonably simple. He says, look, if the eye is bad, then darkness fills the whole body. If your eye is good, you can see. If your eye is bad, it doesn't matter how much light you are surrounded by, you will still see nothing. And his point is simple that if you cannot see, you will be blind. And the reason that he has this in the middle of a tirade about wealth is for one simple and clear reason. His caution is that money, like nothing else, has the power to blind. That money, or greed in particular, has an especially blinding power. In the sections before this, when he cautions about murder or adultery, he doesn't give this illustration of blindness for a good reason. If you're committing those sins, you know it. You, you don't accidentally do it. But it's very possible, isn't it, to be greedy and not even notice. There is a blinding power to wealth that when it has a grip on you, one of the most destructive powers it has is that you don't even notice. And why is this the case? It might be different all over the world, but certainly in our context, it's for this reason. In our culture, there is always going to be someone wealthier or greedier than you to look to. There will always be someone who has more of a problem with money than you do. And so it's very easy when you hear Jesus' teachings and cautions on wealth and money to think like, this is such a good message for so many other people. This is, I know someone who could really, even maybe right now you're like, I hope they're recording this because I know someone that really needs to hear this message. And it's so often the case, isn't it, that when we read these passages, we can think about how this must apply to so many other people. But Jesus won't let us do this. In fact, whenever you encounter Jesus' teaching in the Gospels on money, it's impossible to go away from them without thinking there's something about my life that needs to change. The way he spoke about it was ingenious in that way. No one can walk away from Jesus' teaching on it and be like, I've done it. I've completed, I've completed the money segment of my discipleship, and now what's next? Now we need to hear this. Because if Jesus is right, and if the eye is good, it fills the light with body, and if the eye is bad, it fills us with blindness, then we need to hear his caution that we might be blind to something, that we might be under the blinding power of wealth and greed. 
and that we need to hear what Jesus has to say to us. See, what is greed really blinding us from in this passage? There is a reality that is trying to blind us. The reality that money is not so much about what you're spending, but what you're worshipping. That's the blindness. It's the blindness to the fact that money is not really about what we're spending, but about what we're worshipping. Look at what Jesus says. We'll return to his words again just before this caution. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart in the Bible represents our strongest and deepest desires. And when the heart becomes united to something, when our deepest desires are connected to something that you can own or possess, then it becomes a treasure. If you have a car, for example, and it gets written off, that is a very frustrating experience, I imagine. And there might be all kinds of things about that that are difficult or financially difficult or whatever else it is. But it's a challenge to sort of overcome. But if your car is your treasure, if it is connected to your deepest desires for wealth, for status, for approval, and it gets written off, you won't just be upset about it, you'll be devastated. It's the same with anything else, whether it's your clothes. If your clothes are just clothes, it's frustrating when they get destroyed or lost or borrowed and never returned or whatever else it is. But if they're united to your deepest desires, your desire for significance and status, when they're damaged, you'll be devastated. When it comes to your work, even, or your achievements, being criticized about them, if they're not united to your heart, is just kind of like, well, maybe I do need to improve, or maybe they have a fair point, or maybe they overcooked it a little bit, or whatever else it is. But if our heart is united to it, we're devastated. Once your heart is attached to something, it becomes a treasure. And so Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but treasure in heaven. That is to say, the deepest desires of your heart are to be fulfilled in God, not in the things that God can provide. And that's why he finishes this section with this warning. In Matthew 6.24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He says you cannot, you cannot be under two masters. You cannot be under two bosses. That ultimately, one will rule the other. And he says here, to make it clear, that you will love either God or money and not both. There is not space on the throne of the heart for both of those things to be co-regents. That in the end, one will rule the other. Either you will love God and despise money, or you will despise God and love money, but not both. See, what Jesus is saying here is that when we use the word love, we can be a little bit relaxed about it. You can say, I love lots of things. I love sport, I love chocolate, all these kind of things. But Jesus here is talking about capital L love. The kind of love that he's talking about when he says to, to follow God is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. There really is only one thing that you capital L love, one thing that you believe in which you will find all your significance or meaning or happiness. That thing that you trust for that, that thing is the thing you love and that you worship. That is your God. And Jesus says you will either trust him for these things or you will trust money, but not both. You cannot simultaneously believe that all joy is found in both money and in God. 
one or the other. And so the question would be, if this is the case, why do we love money like that? What would lead a person to capital L, love money? And give it power and mastery over our life? Why would we do that? Well, the truth is, it taps into our deepest fears, doesn't it? You know what's funny? When it comes to a historical figure like Hitler, a lot of people have in mind that he must have been some kind of an evil genius, that he was incredibly gifted, incredibly smart, incredibly talented, but just used all of those powers for evil. But one of the great mysteries about Hitler is that he was none of those things. What is plainly obvious about his life was that he was absolutely unexceptional. In fact, routinely an underachiever. And Sir Ian Kershaw wrote a biography of his life, and the biography is, is really built on one single question that he had. And he, he, he articulates it this way. He said, how could such a bizarre misfit have ever been in a position to take power in Germany, a modern, complex, and economically developed culture? I've missed that. A modern, complex, economically developed, and culturally advanced country. He was like, how did this guy, who was far more of an underachiever than many of the people he was in charge of, end up rising to the top? And the answer that comes through is pretty clear, and sadly, it's been repeated throughout history. It comes down to a theory around charismatic leaders during a time of crisis. And he says this, Charismatic authority did not rest on the outstanding qualities of the individual. Rather, it rested on the perception of such qualities among a following, which, during a crisis, gives the leader heroic attributes and a sense that he is a saviour. If that didn't make sense or that's all garbled, it's as simple as this. What someone like Hitler does is they find a group of people's deepest fear and they hammer and hammer and hammer onto it and then they say, I can save you from that. And for Germany at the time, it was the fear of national humiliation that was being experienced by the whole country. And he said, we're humiliated, humiliated, humiliated and I can take us back to glory. And all of his speeches, they're not articulate, they're not different, they're not varied. It's the same thing on repeat over and over and over. Because when you tap into people's fears, you can gain mastery over their life. And money, in many ways, does the same thing. It taps into our deepest fears and says, I can solve that for you. Is your greatest fear humiliation? Well, I can make you powerful. No one will be able to look down on you. No one will see you as a nobody. That fear that you have that you're going to come to nothing, once you have money, you'll be someone and something, and people will look at you differently. Money will give you power. If your greatest fear is rejection, money says, I can get you approval. When you dress a certain way, when you have a certain amount of money, just watch how, people, how differently they relate to you. They're not going to set you aside. People are going to seek you out in a room. When they see what kind of car you have, what house you have, they're going to see you in a whole different light. I can get you approval and acceptance. If your greatest fear is stress and demands, money says, I can give you the easy life. You'll never have to worry about anything. You'll have so much money. If something breaks down, you don't have to stress about fixing it. You just get a new one. If anything becomes difficult, you can vacate whenever you want. You won't need to work. You'll have no stresses, no worries. Money will give you comfort. If your greatest fear is uncertainty, money says, I can give you control, I can give you certainty. You'll have so much money that it won't matter what happens to you in the future. You'll be able to take care of it because you'll have money. 
whatever you need, whatever you want. If your kids are going to get braces, don't worry, you'll be able to cover it, no problem. There'll be no situation that will be out of your control because you will have money and you'll have certainty. And this is how our things go from being just things to our treasure. This is how they go from stuff that's in our life to stuff that grips our heart to the stuff that we cannot live without to something that is functionally a master, even a god. But it's an illusion. Money can't really solve these things. It can't really deal with your fear of rejection or your fear of humiliation or the fear of being nothing. It can't give lasting comfort and it doesn't give real control. It's all an illusion. Christ alone is a real saviour. Christ alone can save us from sin and shame and wash us and make us new. And for you to be declared in the heavenly courts as righteous as the Son of God because he has taken your sin upon him and granted you his righteousness. That Christ alone can secure our acceptance before God, which means if God is for you, then who can be against you? Christ alone can grant us comfort and strength in times of stress and challenge. Christ alone can give us certainty that death will not be the end but is in fact just the beginning and the doorway to the life eternal. That's why at the end of the book of Corinthians, Paul, who had staked everything on the fact that Christ was his only treasure and the only thing worth happening, wrote this. He said, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All fears are just, in the end, ultimately, a fear of death. And Christ alone has conquered sin and death. And he has taken the sting from death, because for all who believe in him, there is not a judgment awaiting us after death, but life everlasting. That our deepest fears and desires will find our satisfaction and their yes in him forever. And in him, you have life eternal and indestructible. And this ultimately is what's at the bottom of everyone's seeking of money, isn't it? Do you know what's a weird trend? I don't know if you've noticed this, and I may, I may have some kind of confirmation bias in this, but it seems to be the case that once people become not just billionaires, but billionaire-billionaire types, just impossibly rich to where you, could like, you, you couldn't even spend all the money that you have, they start to get really into like, obscure sciences around like freezing your brain or like cryogenics and like all that kind of stuff, living forever type stuff. And this is just a, this has no base in real, I mean, there's probably too small a sample group to know if this is a thing anyway. But I do wonder a couple of things. One is, for people who are that rich, it's not a thought experiment to say, what would I do if I had all of my needs taken care of up to the power of 10 lifetimes? And so they're, they're living in a kind of a, a zero-gravity environment that we don't even know what it's like up there. And so for them, maybe once you get to that point where you've got all the money and power you could possibly want, it's like, but I'm still going to die and it will count for nothing. Then maybe that's the fear that haunts them. Or maybe it's just the sense that when you become that rich, you start to think like, maybe I am God and maybe everyone needs me to live forever. So... I better take care of this for the sake of everyone else. I don't know. I'm not sure what happens up in that you know, level of the stratosphere of wealth. But in which way, it is an illustration that in the end, 
Death makes a mockery of all money. That if Christ is not your treasure, then what does it matter in the end? Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Anything you have in this life will fade, will go out of fashion, will be destroyed or could be stolen. Or ultimately, even if you keep it all the way with you up until the point of death, once you are dead, it makes no difference. And so he says, store up treasure in heaven. Know that what, it, what life is about is about connection and relationship with God. And that once you have him, you have everything. So what would it look like to live out Jesus' words? To have our treasure in heaven? It would be to live in a way that demonstrates that Christ is our treasure and not money. And what this would look like practically is approaching finances, work, possessions in the way that a missionary would. That is to say, I want to live as simply as I can in order to give away as much as I can to advance the kingdom, to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes, to address poverty and injustice, to advance the gospel locally and globally. It means using our possessions in the way that Jesus would have us. Because ultimately the world is passing away and this stuff can't come with us and won't protect us. It is here in service of God and others. And so with that, I reckon there are two, two deceptions that we might be prone to. And the first one is this. If it's the case that for whatever reason, God has, has gifted you with a lot of wealth to steward, that is, you're, more than your needs are sort of taken care of, that yes, you still need to work on all that sort of thing, but you actually, you actually have a fair bit to steward there. The deception will be this, is that so long as you give away some it will basically baptize the whole lot. That so long as there is, you're being generous with some portion of it, maybe something like a 10%, that's the number that kind of you know, goes around. We'll get a bit more into that next week. But so long as you do that, it basically baptizes any financial decision beyond that. But the truth is that's a deception. That we all know that there are some decisions around money that are healthy and some that are greedy. There is a line somewhere, and it's hard to know when you've crossed it because there isn't a boundary in Scripture where you're like, if you have a house with this many rooms or that many rooms, this is good, this is sinful. There's, there's nothing like that. Jesus just gives us these passages where it's like, you're going to have to work out how to live this out. But here's the truth. If you don't set a line and a limit ahead of time, you absolutely will cross one. If you don't set a line and a limit ahead of time, you absolutely will cross one. When it comes to, to missionaries in an overseas context, we expect in advance for them to have made commitments around how they will steward things and to have set limits before they set out so that when things start happening in the thick of mission life, they're not making decisions on the fly, right? You expect that to be a kind of a wisdom. But shouldn't that then be the same for us in our context? To ahead of time now, even while you're in your 20s, to think, what would it look like to live as simply as I can, not to live in a cardboard box or anything like, like anyone's necessarily at risk of that in a context like ours, but to live as simply as I can in a way to be as generous as I possibly can to magnify Christ with what I have. And to even set limits, to be like, if God willing, we had this much wealth, this is where we would cap it. And everything after that 
would just go away from us. Or even set limits on like, if we had this kind of accommodation, that's where it stops for us. We don't endlessly flip and then get another one and then get bigger and bigger and bigger. Because the truth is, the nature of wealth is that it's deceptive. And, and most people feel like even whatever level of wealth you have, that you could always do with just a little bit more. And so the goalposts will just keep shifting and shifting and shifting. I think wisdom from this teaching of Jesus would be to say that if you're to live as a missionary, it would mean setting a cap ahead of time. And one that you might even have a close group of friends that hold you accountable to, to say, this is what I think wise stewardship would look like. And for us, not for everyone, but for us, this is what greed would look like. And to commit to it. That's one way to address the deceptiveness of wealth. And a radical way. But the other one would be this. That's for those who have been given much, but for those who contextually feel like we have little. The risk and the deception for you is to be like, I'll be generous later. Once I have full-time work, once I finish my degree, once I'm settled, once I have a house, once, 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 whatever the goalposts are, on the other side, there's just going to be a tidal wave of generosity pouring out for me. And the reason that's deceptive is Jesus says here, it's about the heart. And the problem with the heart is that it goes wherever you go. And if your heart right now is not geared towards generosity, what makes you think it will be in the future? It is a self-deception we give ourselves to be like, I think my future generosity will make up for my, my current self now. So on aggregate, we're going to be a generous person. And you're really banking a lot of, it's taking a lot on your future self to really come good somewhere down the line. But the truth is, if there's a reason not to be generous now, there'll be a reason not to be generous next month, and the one after, and the year after, and the decade after. It's the nature of wealth. It's what Jesus says. It darkens the soul and deceives us. And so I'd encourage you, if you've bought into that, to be like, yeah, we might have limited finances. That, that's going to have limits on how generous we can be. But we are called in each and every season to think, what would that look like right now? What do Jesus' words mean for us right now? Because going on from that, any which way you cut it, one of the things that we all need is some kind of clarity and accountability around it. And in practical terms, that usually means we need a budget. I've heard one person describe as spending without a budget is like driving without a speedo. Can you imagine just how many fines you would have right now if you did not have a speedometer on your car? Because think about how relative it feels when you're driving a car. What feels fast and slow depends very much on how late you are, correct? It depends very much also on your context. If everyone is absolutely hooning, and it even puts you, you've, if you've ever been in the context where you're at the speed limit and people are just like Mario karting past you, you start to doubt yourself. You're like, Maybe I did get it. Maybe the speed limit is 180. But without a speeder, you just don't have a way to know. Can I encourage you as one practical way of putting Jesus' teachings into place this week is that if you do not have a budget, to get one. And I reckon, and only because I've seen it in my own soul, that I imagine I can't be the only one, that sometimes the reason we don't want a budget is it's like, look, if I don't know, then maybe I am doing the right thing. And even in our heart of hearts, we're like, I think I'm probably speeding in budget terms. If I don't know, there's kind of like, a, like an ignorance I can just throw over the whole thing. 
But the truth is, if you were to sit down and think, what has God given me to steward? And is my budget matching up with the gospel? And if not, what needs to change? What needs to change over this next while? And we'll be diving a bit more into that next week. But as we do that as individuals, we're planning to do this as a church as well. And so over this year, we want to drive with a speedo and not without one and to budget for the year. So what we're going to be asking only members of the church to do is to pledge this year anonymously what it is that you've prayed about and think God has put on your heart to steward and to give over the year so that we can work out what we can budget for. And one of the reasons for that is that if we continue on as we did last year, that this year it's going to mean that we'd need to make some cuts. And the main two expenditures we have is the rental down here and in staffing. And those two things for us we think are mission critical for going forward. But we want the church to be thinking and praying about Jesus' words, about the call to generosity, about stewarding what we have for the kingdom, and then to submit pledges next week, not this week, but next week, that we might be able to forecast where we're up to of the year and what God is calling us to do and how he's calling us to steward our things. Because the truth is, it is a blessing to give as Jesus calls us to, not a curse. It is a blessing. And let me finish with this, with this story. C.T. Studd was a missionary to Africa, but before that, he was a rich kid. And he was a, a rich kid in 19th century England. 19th, yeah, that's right. And he, he actually wasn't just wealthy, but to give you some indication of how wealthy he was, he played cricket. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a wealthy person sport now, but just think back, just try and imagine back to the 19th century. If you play a sport that is in all white and takes at least five days, sometimes 12 days to play, you don't have a lot else going on in life, right? If you can take that much time to do it, you're rich. So he was rich, rich, but he was also not just like playing cricket for leisure. He was playing cricket for England. In fact, C.T. Studd was in the first Ashes test. That is when they lost to Australia and got all melodramatic about it and said cricket in England has died and burned it down and made the urn. In fact, I'm pretty sure his name specifically is on the poem on the back of the urn as well. But C.T. Studd got saved. He met Jesus and understood Jesus to be his ultimate treasure and it completely flipped his life around. And instead of accruing wealth, he gave it away and he went to make disciples in a foreign context, even risking his life to do it. And he wrote a poem. And he was a great cricketer, and not so much a poet. But it's an excellent poem because it comes from a heart and a life that was serious about joy in Christ. And he immortalized this famous line that you might have heard before. He said this, Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that's how he related to life and his finances and everything that God had given him to steward. May God empower us by his Holy Spirit to live with the same mind and heart. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you are a generous God. That even though all riches and all wealth belong to you, that when it came to saving us, you opened up the storehouses of heaven and poured out what was most precious, the blood of your beloved Son. And Father, we just, we are in awe of how much you have loved us, and not just once in sending Christ to die for us, 
but in continually being with us, sustaining us, and giving us life and breath and everything. So we just pray, Father, that you would grant us a deep joy in you that might lead us to transform lives. That by your empowering presence, your Holy Spirit, you might be strengthening us to have the mind of Christ and to see the world and our things as he does. And that it might be our joy to use what we have to demonstrate that Christ is our treasure and not our money. And Father, we pray all these things for the glory of your name. Amen.